0: Today's presenting sponsor is Bigger Hammer. Bigger Hammer provides crew, rigging services, stage management, production management, and labor coordination for concerts, events, and productions in Southern California.
1: So Danielle, that's very nice for Southern California. What else they got?
0: I'm so glad you asked. Do you need crew outside of Southern California?
1: I do. There's a labor shortage, haven't you heard?
0: As a full-service labor broker, Bigger Hammer books labor across the U.S., Canada, and beyond.
1: Like the moon? Can Bigger Hammer get me, you know, crew on the
0: moon? That's a great question, and the ad copy doesn't say, but you can visit them at biggerhammer.com and find out for yourself. And welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Danielle Hernandez.
1: I'm Steve Edelman.
0: And today we're gonna to talk about working at height and mups. So, Steve, do you know what a mupe is? I, I don't know what a mupe is, Danielle. What what is a mupe? Well and how do you so spell mupe? Mewp? M-E-W-P. And sometimes you stick an S on it if it's plurals, mups. So our special guest today is Phil Van Hest from Bigger Hammer Productions. And Phil, as your entry into the pod today, what is a MUP?
2: Gosh, Danielle, so glad you asked. Uh, And (laughs) I'm also excited to hear your pronunciation because um, MUP is a brand new acronym that entered the universe a couple years ago. And it's, is it a moop? Is it a MUP? You know, how liquid is the U sound in the middle there? Um, You can tell a lot about a person about how they lead off with that. So I'm glad you've got- So gone. let's save that
0: conversation for the Re- bar. <laughs> is this like
2: GIF versus
0: GIF? Yes. I'm still no, no, waiting, what is settled. a mup?
2: It's GIF, GIF is a peanut butter. So Mup is a mobile elevating work platform and- Such as? A scissor lift, a boom or snorkel lift. Uh, there are many other industrial applications, but for our entertainment industry, the scissor, snorkel boom and single person lift are the ones that we'll primarily be discussing. They're previously known as AWP's aerial work platforms. That was just not specific enough for the folks at ANSI and they are now mobile elevating work platforms. And I can bore you all the tears with all the uh, different groups and types and classification strategies that we have.
0: We'll come back Um, to that.
2: (laughs) I don't don't know, I'm I'm anxious to get to the boring of the people because I find if you lead off with that, Then you guarantee that it's impossible to bore them later. uh,
1: (laughs) You you are (laughs) a master of managing expectations downward.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's the first rule of comedy. Don't tell them you're funny, uh, then they will expect it. If you just say, This is a safety podcast and we're going to discuss safety things, if you're vaguely, we are very dull. uh,
0: It's our goal to bore people the entire time.
2: Standing still. All right. Go ahead,
0: Danielle. I... All right. So, so lifts. Daniel, you know, of... what are we
1: talking about here?
0: Get... We're talking about working at height. There we go. So working at height is dangerous and OSHA has a bunch of rules about working at height. Um, and I think we're going to start there because OSHA is much more boring than, than lifts. And yes. ph- I'm now learning from my the language. Master. Exactly. Uh, actually it, have enjoyed all the OSHA stuff I've ever done, but that says more about me than I think anything else. Uh, So working at height, let's say we're doing a load in. Phil, wanna tell us about what's considered at height?
2: Oh, sure, 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 sure. So um, I I would like to uh, give a nod to my friend, Ken Kemperly and uh, specify that um, there there are uh, OSHA definitions for what constitutes at height work. And, you know, many other OSHA items that, uh, you know, restrict and regulate our behaviors on site. But really, it's we're trying to keep people safe. So you could uh, encounter a scenario where you're technically uh, not breaking the law, but it is still a danger, a scenario that you would want to protect people from. So I I don't want to necessarily, um, you know, get too much into the weeds of, well, Fed OSHA uh, construction industry is six feet, but Cal OSHA is seven and a half feet. Um, and then general industry, four feet, this, that. And the other thing, because we go back and forth, but perhaps what you're getting at is load in um, generally, uh, well, I shouldn't say generally, usually uh, the industry standard is to go with the construction industry standards. When we're doing load ins and load outs, we tend to, as an industry, stick to the construction industry standards in OSHA, and then during show, more of the general industry standards. So it can be a lot of hard hat on, hard hat off, um, for the stage manager, basically.
0: To your point, anytime you are elevated above something else that there is a risk there. Um, I know that more than once I have broken and or strained tendons in my ankles on something equivalent to a step.
1: Yes. So, but yes. I'm
2: <laughs> Yes, and in theaters, of course, it's often uh, quite dark back there. So, yes. yes. Um, you may need to uh, be creative and imaginative with all of your um, fault protection measures. Um, During construction load in, um, if we're talking about a theater or if we're talking about a temporary stage scenario, um, one of the problems that we encounter is not so much people being ignorant of the rules, but people being unclear about how to deal with them as they are presented. Or perhaps they've just been there for so long they're blind to them, but let's go one at a time. Let's say, you know, the apron of the stage presents a consistent fall hazard. You can fall off it into the audience or into the orchestra pit and the orchestra pit, who knows how far down that thing is. Um, So, you know, we put a rope across the stage to keep people back from there and we train them not to go there. This might not be enough. So, you know, a road case could easily slide under there or so could a person. So we put up a net maybe or we put a net over the entire orchestra pit. But if you've just been working that theater for 20 years and no one's ever done anything about it and nothing has happened yet, perhaps you're not super inclined to be aware that this is a hazard because it's just your workspace.
0: I think um, we call that confirmation bias.
2: Thank you, yes. And now in a an arena setting where we're building a stage, you know, we build this uh, six foot, eight foot high stage and there's no guard, while we're building it, there's no guardrails on it, Um, there's no steps up to it, and people Mm -hmm. are jumping up on road cases to get up there, or they're working on top of the space with no uh, fall protection whatsoever, and no one's sure who's supposed to be in charge of it, and this is the way we've always done it, and people aren't really clear about it. So those are the types of rubber meets the road challenges that Um, As a managing person, you have to try to um, predict are going to be issues and try to solve ahead of time if possible, like, hey, we need to get guardrails on here first before we can have people up there focusing the lights or what have you, or we need to get a step unit in here before we move on to this next part. And as workers, uh, you need to be aware of what your rights are in terms of fall protection so that you can genuinely say, I'm not comfortable going up there um, and they'll either find, some, find someone else who's not as uh, comfortable uh, telling someone no, or they will uh, complain at you, and if you work for me, that you will call me and I will back you up. So if you say, hey, that's too tall, I'm not comfortable going up there, and they yell at you and you say, hey, it's company policy, I don't want to get fired, uh, management needs to be able to support the workers who are uncomfortable working in certain scenarios, especially if they violate uh, Fed OSHA or state OSHA regulations. There has to be a level of non-ego. There has to be a level of, uh, it's it's often difficult because of the customer client interface where you don't wanna be rude and you don't wanna tell them you're unwilling to work and make it sound like you just don't want to. And often the people skills and the soft skills needed to smooth over that situation and come up with alternative solutions or any type of solution is what's missing. So a lot of times everyone knows the rules, but then the work just needs to happen and everyone's in a rush to get done and they just go ahead and skirt the law and do it because that's the most expedient method. And so uh, in the entertainment industry often our biggest problem is managing expectations of clients. Trying to vet the gigs ahead of time so that we can predict any fall hazard scenarios and circumnavigate them. Uh, pardon me if I'm really going off on a tear here, but one of the common ones is building truss structures. Previously, uh, you know, your riggers would just climb up the truss and bolt it together while the you know grade all held it in place. And really, we try to get boom lifts in there as much as possible. Ladders, climbing ladders and climbing truss are one of the more dangerous things you can do. Using a lift still has its risks, but is uh, statistically much safer than uh, climbing a vertical ladder, aka truss, or even using a standard A-frame. I don't know if you know this, but the United States leads the world in ladder accidents. USA, USA. While we've been talking, several people have fallen off of ladders and hurt themselves. It's over 100,000 a year. Now, of course, most of those are drunk dads at Christmas hanging decorations, but we should not discount the fact that when you see a ladder at work, that's like a that's like a live gator. You wanna give that thing a healthy amount of respect. When you're, you need to know how to climb them correctly, what the proper usage uh, methodologies are, how to inspect them and how to uh, treat them with the respect they deserve because chances are, if if you're gonna get hurt at work, like after driving to work, that's the most dangerous thing you're gonna do, and then climbing a ladder is probably second most dangerous. Uh, I don't know if I've answered your question at all. I've oh, really. Oh no, this is this is great.
0: Hurt. No, this is fantastic. This is why you're here. Uh, uh, and and you touched on like one of the, one of my one of my focuses is that we are we constantly discount the stage. As, as a risk place, as in it's a different level than adjoining surfaces. Um, and that doesn't matter if you're on a field or in an arena or in a convention center or in a theater, you know, you just, you hear stories, your own experience of people s- not seeing a difference in height, in changing light conditions or unfamiliarity, or just out of practice, or as you said, not not recognizing the risk of it because it's always been that way, and that one day you didn't notice the pit. A wise was down. woman
2: once told me this was confirmation bias. I can't remember who it was. Um, well, let me know. Really smart and attractive young lady. I forget. Um, it'll come back to me. Um, there was a, there's some uh, white papers. Uh, is it Monona? There's some mm-hmm. um, interesting papers written about um, you know how if you're going to have a dance. If you're going to do a dance show, you rehearse in the same box size space as the stage you're going to be working on. Because, you know, like clockwork, every year or two, some poor dancer goes flying off the apron into someone's lap in the front row. And one of the ways to uh, curb that from happening is to make sure they practice in the exact same, you know, Sure. shape space that they're because it's,
0: it's muscle memory as much as anything else and not just for performers but for people working in in the space
2: and when you travel it's pretty reasonable to presume you can f- be in spaces that are have the same rectangular shape uh that you can fit into um as most other ones i saw some uh there was this guy who came through with his dance show and he did a really cool thing for the apron where we didn't have a uh we don't have footlights. We didn't have footlights in this space. We didn't really have any way to uh place any there that weren't going to be sightline issues or what have you. He, had, he found at this fishing supply store, these little miniature glow sticks that you can use for certain types of night fishing. They're like little tiny glow sticks. And then he gaff taped them before the show onto the apron of the stage, like every two or three feet so that you could see them if you were facing downstage but not if you were in the audience and I thought that was pretty cool
0: that's very clever
2: (laughs) there are some theaters that have just like access steps upstage that are just in the dark and people need to go in and out of them during a show but they present a serious trip hazard so um if you can't get lighting onto the floor in that area there's um, different textured uh you know, tape or flooring surfaces. You know, little you know, rumble strips that you can put mm-hmm. around that area so that you can feel. Oh, I'm getting close to this this trip hazard. Theater catwalks, front of house positions, torn positions. Um, I do uh, rigging inspections and fall hazard assessments for theaters, and these are the classic hazard spots in any theater. Mm-hmm. Um, we had Bill Sapsis out at our space to do uh, fall hazard stuff or competent person training and he was the first person to point out to me that you know there was no way to get anyone out of the catwalk like we'd done all this stuff with guard railing and moving our lights around and piping so that there was no fall hazard on the catwalk but you could still slip down the ship's ladder you could still have a cardiac event you know and as 20 year old you know kids we're not thinking about this um but it is Definitely, you know, we have overhire workers who are retired or what have you. At any, you know, you can right. have and a car. How do you, how do you get them out of the grid? At any <laughs> age, and there is no way to get them out of there. There's a vertical ladder, spiral ladder, ships ladder. How are you going to put someone on a Stoke sled and drag them up and down all of those steps to get them out? There's no prompt rescue possible from that space. And our spotlight booth, it's only accessible through the attic. So if there was fire. There's no way to get them down from there. The fire marshal didn't even really know. He said, uh, you could get them some smoke hoods, I guess. Um, The only other option was run to the roof and hope a helicopter drops a ladder for you. Um, Assuming you can hold onto a ladder. Assuming you're capable of uh, being your own Universal Studios stunt spectacular. I mean, I volunteered for every spotlight shift, desperately hoping for... uh,
0: a reason multi-million to
2: do that. Dollar, well, now, now we
0: know more about you. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to do spot so that I can exit via the roof.
2: <laughs> via helicopter. That is correct. <laughs> um, torn positions, the tormentor positions often have no guardrails except the lighting pipes, which are, I suppose, supposed to be the guardrails, but they have no tow boards. You could, you know, I don't know if you've ever dropped a gel frame uh, from height but those are little ninja stars. If you don't drop them correctly, uh, you could lodge one of those in someone's head quite easily. Um, Yeah. uh, Little things, um, all those
0: little things. So, so uh, going back a bit, if you're not familiar with what a tormentor lighting position is, this is a theater term primarily. And it's, it's a, generally speaking in either just in front of the stage or just in the audience. uh, It's a, Basically a high side front light position. Um, I don't know that you you don't normally get that in in a field because everything's up on a truss. But that that's what he was talking about. And if that didn't make sense either, send me an email at podcast at eventsafetylines and I'll send you a picture of mine. <laughs> like this is what I'm talking about. Um, so you touched on something that i want to for for our famous listeners uh, talk about a little bit more is that you have to have a rescue plan to get people
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. injured
0: at height down
2: i mean and after I think, after boring stuff rescue plan is my next favorite thing go on please
0: okay so so you know we talk a lot about you eliminate you eliminate the risk first if you can and Eventually you get to the point where you're in some sort of fall arrest. I'm gonna talk fall arrest because that's really the situation we're kind of talking about here. If somebody falls and then they're hanging in a harness, you actually have a very limited amount of time to get their weight off of their pelvis uh, because they're gonna cut off their circulation. Um, and that's typically much longer than it takes for your fire department to get there and figure out what a theater does. So, <laughs> you have to have a plan to help them and get them down. And a lot of times we spend so much time figuring out the, the risk of the fall and the PPE involved that we miss that last step. So,
2: yes, yes, we do. Um, or we we nod at it cursorily and chuckle under our breath and say, we Tip our head we as we walk is by. Don't fall. Um, of course, four things are needed for any personal fall arrest system um your anchor the anchorage the connecting device the full body harness and the rescue plan so osha is
0: mm-hmm.
2: vague enough on this subject they only require prompt rescue so depending on whether you exist in a linear timeline <laughs> non-linear timeline time um, is wibbly your wobbly. quantum fugue state is explicable in a court of law in a way that you could get away with saying, "Well, you know, geologically speaking,"
0: I have uh, lots of they got so.
2: down promptly. They're still up there. It was seven months ago. Like, yes, I know, but if you think about it in terms of, you know, evolution, he still makes a great Christmas uh, ornament all year round. Prompt rescue, yes. So, uh, and of course, what we're trying to avoid is orthostatic intolerance from the harness and there are the many complications that the lack of blood flow back up to your heart can engender. And if you've ever hung in a harness from your dorsal ring for any period of time, you know that immediate is not soon enough. So if you're in charge of managing a fall protection plan, getting relief straps onto all of your harnesses and all of your employees' harnesses is imperative. If you are fancy and do uh, you know, rope access stuff and you have your own positioning device, you can kind of do your own build your own strain relief. but otherwise uh, for the average authorized user, you're going to want some relief straps and they come in the form of little ladders or just pieces of webbing that you can cam together under your feet. And then yeah. you stand in that relief strap and it takes it, it allows the blood to circulate. And if you don't have those, you just got to pull your knees up to your chest repeatedly and hope for the best prompt rescue now the rescue plan of course doesn't have to be complicated and i think people are perhaps intimidated by the concept of the rescue plan but um, oftentimes it's quite simple or it should be as simple as possible if you're not that high off the ground um, you know they're not my favorite but you can shove a ladder under someone they can climb down the ladder easy peasy if there are scissor lifts or boom lifts available that can reach the person use the lift to rescue the person Nice and easy. It doesn't have to be a SWAT team repelling from the ceiling and doing a complicated pickoff. If you are in a scenario where you don't have a lift and you are gonna uh, possibly have someone hanging in in midair with no other way to get down, then you're gonna need to invest in a different system like a five to one um, roll gliss system or some sort of block and tackle operation that will allow you to uh, reach and rescue the person who has fallen. And then when you decide on that plan, you have to practice it. This is the only way to ensure prompt rescue. I ran rescue practice at uh, the Galen Center the other day. We had some downtime during a Billie Eilish load in and I asked around and said, is it cool if we do this? And they said, okay. So we practiced three times and we got from 15 and a half to six and a half to five and a half minutes. But if you don't practice, you're going to have a, uh, no one knows who's supposed to be in charge. Everyone knows maybe maybe they don't even know where the kit is. They certainly might not know how to use it. And then the logistics of like, okay, well, theoretically, I know how to do this in practice, but now I got to carry it out here. How am I going to do that? Um, and we found some good deficiencies. Like our rope rescue bag didn't have a carabiner strap on it, so we couldn't Safety it off as we took it out there. And you definitely don't want to be in a scenario where you drop the rescue kit on somebody's head. So, um, finding out all those weaknesses in your plan is uh, a great part of uh, the rescue plan practice. But you have to have a plan. You have to practice the plan. If your plan involves calling the fire department, which of course it or calling 911 is always part of the rescue plan, someone specifically tasked not only with calling 911, uh, but with Getting them where they need to be, you know, maybe the fire department or you know EMTs haven't been to this performing arts center or this event center, and just getting to the address is not helping. The, the the access point may be clogged with the road cases. They they may need, the trucks might be in the way. You might need to navigate them through some series of hotel hallways or whatever. The the people who are going to meet the EMTs and bring them to the site. You know who's who's coordinating the full work stoppage. Anytime there's a fall, there's got to be a full work stoppage until that scenario is resolved. I also recommend people um, not have a rescue plan that involves pulling people back up to where they fell, because the EMTs are going to have to take them down anyway. So if uh, they even the adrenaline may cause them to want to come back up very badly, um, and they may seem fine but then you pull them back up and the adrenaline fades, they go into shock and now they need to be double rescued. So if your rescue plan uh, can in any way involve dropping them to the floor, that's a poor choice of verb, but uh, bringing them safely. I've safe had nightmares about that. Thanks, Phil. The floor, then it should, uh, that's what it should encompass. But the rescue plan is often overlooked because it can be so daunting and it is so complicated and it requires so much paperwork and so much pre-planning and Uh, in my line of work we're doing um, uh, uh, rigging and at at height work in a variety of venues multiple venues in the same day with different crews and keeping track of what that venue is and what the rescue plan is there uh, can be complicated we uh, we moved out of the sports arena and started working in the galen center the grid had a four foot difference and that meant our five to one uh, didn't reach all the way to the ground in the new space. I had to buy some longer rope. I tested it out in there and it was, it would get you to within six feet of the floor. And then that was it. Then you were, then you were on your own. Uh, yeah, so, the-
0: so as we have this conversation, what I'm thinking is that, you know, we're in a labor shortage right now. And some of the people that are working with me now have never like they're new, they're fantastic humans, but they're new. And I'm, I'm like, well,
2: like babies?
0: Not quite that new. Well, all right. So some of them are freshman college students. And at my age, that does feel they a lot like baby. Flight. But, you know, they are actually adults. But, you know, On I paper. think a lot of us have have greener crews right now that correct. they may have been exposed to this at some point, but they're certainly not comfortable with it yet. Um, and even the people that have practiced rescue plans, it may have been a minute. Um, of and course. With We're going from nothing to, oh my God, all the things. I don't know that everybody's able, well, able is the wrong word, has thought to reinstitute that training at the beginning, middle, and during these different, it's just an interesting note. It depends what
2: (laughs) type of resources you've had available to you during the downturn. (laughs) The downturn, he called it. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's a bit of an understatement, considering it was a 100% evaporation. Uh, during <laughs> it's more that like a hiccup, <laughs> uh, Yes, that brief recess we took from our profession. Uh, you may or may not have had time to keep up with all this stuff. However, you are legally obligated, and I'll run this by legal, to have all four parts of a personal fall arrest system if you're going to have people working at height and that fourth you know the first three are the 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 easy bits because they make the most visual sense i have to connect to something i have to have a thing to connect with and i have to have the harness on these are all you know the obvious bits and then the rescue plan is this ethereal someone's probably in charge of that somewhere um who it is i don't know um and if you but I will say, if you are going to be putting people at work at height, whether you're the one instructing them to do it or whether you're the one being asked to do it, having a rescue plan
0: is a requirement is of law. A requirement.
2: So you're a bit stuck there. You're going to have to figure it out. And if you need help, go find help. You know, I consider myself a, a vague uh, resource and am able to, if not tell you what a good plan is, uh, refer you out to some people who are more well-versed in complicated rescue plan uh, solutions or know what all the new fancy kit is that they can definitely sell you, Uh, the answer of course is always time and money. But the rescue plan is a mandatory part. Also having um, uh, documented records of the training that you provide the people who are working at height. So you need to at least have records of providing authorized user training to anyone that you're gonna be handing a harness to and uh, update that every three years. So uh, for all of our riggers, I roll, uh, every time we do mobile elevating work platform training, we roll in the fall protection training with that. A lot of our rigging is done from buckets and lifts, and some of it is done from beams with horizontal uh, lifelines. So both, all, all aspects of the fall protection plan from guardrails to restraint, to arrest, all need to be covered. I went a little bit outside of what I meant to say there. I was hoping to keep it simple. If you're going to be handing someone a harness and showing and a lanyard and telling them use this anchorage or work, go go work over there in the catwalk. You need to train them how to use the equipment. And if you are in the space where they are going to be using that specific equipment, so much the better. Here's this uh horizontal lifeline. Here's the type of anchorage you need to use with it. Here are the scenarios in which you must be attached. Uh, And maybe this is a good uh, jumping off point to my third favorite, goes boring, rescue plan, falling objects. So falling object is the next, uh, outside from ladders, is out there causing uh, a lot of injuries. So my favorite story uh, to tell, and you should just go look it up, but the bullet points are, World War III narrowly averted when a socket from a torque wrench was dropped in a missile silo and punctured the liquid fuel tank of the rocket. Um, It did explode. Uh, The warhead did not detonate. It was found some hundreds of yards away in in a cow pasture. I imagine next to a cow slowly chewing its cud, looking at the warhead suspiciously. Um, But The president had to be on the phone with Russia because this was gonna look like a launch and we needed assurances that uh, we were not launching missiles at them. It was just an accident. So now there's a policy that all tools need to be attached to a lanyard when you're working above a nuclear warhead. You know, and that was 1980. (laughs) That's
0: what it took?
2: That's what it took. So we don't wanna be in the scenario where, well, it hasn't happened before. All tools need to be tied off. As soon as you start, I don't know if anyone's taken physics, but, you know, kinetic and potential energy. As soon as you start increasing the potential energy of that object, you uh, need to tie it off or make sure it's secure. Sockets are, of course, real tricky uh, because there's very, uh, you have to pay extra money for specialty tools that have locking sockets. They're not really standard. So if you're bolting truss together in the air, for example, you may not be supplied with nor should you be responsible for supplying uh, ratchet tools that have locking uh, sockets on them. And really all you can do in that case is ensure that everyone under you is wearing a helmet and that no one's under you while you're working.
0: Yeah, that's what I was thinking is like, well, if you can't secure the thing, then nobody should be under you. And if anybody's in the area, they should be wearing a hard hat because there's an overhead hazard.
2: Yes. And really, they're selling some cool uh, lanyards. They're selling some cool uh, uh, dropped object uh, equipments. Um, You can spend thousands of dollars. You can spend so much money on this stuff. Um, But the, uh, the ANSI standard about dropped object is not specific. It just says you need to have a rated lanyard attached to appropriate anchorage. And then they give sort of three levels of the types of anchorage. There's Attached to your person, um, attached to a work belt, and attached to a structure. So it depends on what you're using. If you're using a small handheld screwdriver, attached to your wrist is probably fine. But if you're using an eight-pound mag drill or hammer drill, definitely want to find a a more secure place to attach it. So appropriate anchorage. That's ANSI uh, 120, I believe, if you want to. Look at it.
0: Yeah, some of the the more, I hate to say common, but more common things that that come out of the air shackle bits, either the, typically it's the bolt and um, chain dumping out of a bag are the ones that I, (laughs) and they can both cause a great deal of damage.
2: The only way we can mitigate those is with uh, training of how to use the equipment and training of how to stay out from under the equipment um, which is why you know you are not allowed to walk under motors that are moving or the things that those motors are carrying while they're moving this is another thing that is frequently uh, (laughs) underlooked at the job site Um, and while i'm on this thought uh, there's a hard hats are required Anytime there's overhead work, and people uh, seem to interpret this as way overhead, but it really just means anytime you're handling material that is at or above head height. And I've had a bunch of injuries that are that range from you know someone's pulling cable and the tail whips over the side and and cuts open their forehead, or they're unloading a truck and unsecured material on the top of a set cart slides off at the bottom of the ramp and hits them in the head. Anytime you're dealing with material, it doesn't have to be, you know- the right. it doesn't nodded, have to be somebody overhead, 40 feet 80 feet up in the air. Anytime there's, so generally speaking, any type of load in, I mandate, um, you know, safety shoes, high vis vests and hard hats uh, during the construction phase, just load in or load out, which includes loading and unloading trucks where a majority of the less glamorous accidents tend to happen. So that's not a hundred percent working at height related, but uh, maybe we could segue into some of the new MUPE standards because it's yes. our fourth favorite subject. We're covering all the hits here. This but is incredible. This is,
0: this episode's about you, Phil, and, and what, what motivates you. What mo-
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's why I included MUPES though, because there, there's some news and that's another point in time when we have people at height.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very popular uh um scenario to find yourself in working in a scissor or a boom. And ANSI very poorly timed the release of A92. Um, because it was it was delayed and then it was released. You'll have to fact check me on this one, but sometime in 2019, I'm gonna I feel like it was later in 2019, and then the pandemic hit and everyone kind of Forgot about it, and now we're getting back to work. And um, I appreciate the fact that they changed it from AWP to MUP because now it's very easy to tell who's had the updated training. If they know the new name, someone has sat them through it. Whether the the training was any good or not is you know that's uh, to TBD, but they've at least they're at least aware that there's new uh, requirements or new guidelines guidance, and. Uh, if I recall correctly, once OSHA has referenced a standard, um, you just have to keep up with all the new iterations of that standard. It doesn't OSHA is not going to change to say now it's A92.24. It's once they've referenced you know that sequence, that series at one time. Now you have to keep. So uh, it is still law. The ANSI stuff is still. You're going to get dinged for it if you don't follow this. So. As far as companies go, it's a liability hold. You're going to need to plug with new MUP training. And as far as operators go, um, you know, you have to be trained. I tried to train everyone when the new standards came out because you have to update people's training every three years or unless there had been an incident or unless the policies or guidelines have changed. So I tried to catch everyone who had a MUP certification with us or an AWP certification to update it. So some of the highlights are, first, I'm going to start up with the boring ones, which is groups and types. So we have group A and B and type 1, two, three. So group A's are just platforms that move up and down along the chassis or the tipping lines. So that's scissors and single-person lifts. And group B is all the other ones where the work platform moves outside of the tipping lines. And for us, that's snorkels and booms. And then type 1 can only be moved in a stowed position. So that would be your vertical mast single person lift and type two and three respectively are control from the basket and control from the ground. So all of our, all of our things are controlled from both, uh, scissors, single person lifts, uh, boom snorkels. So they're all type two, three, unless they are broken. They And they should all have ground controls because that is part of your rescue plan. <clears throat> your rescue plan for being in an, uh, a mobile elevating work platform is that both sets of ground controls work, the battery powered ones. And in case of total electrical failure, the uh, manual override, which in the newer ones is very easy. It's just single lever. You pull it out, releases the hydraulic pressure and lowers you safely, slowly drops you plummeting to the ground. And um, both of those have to be functioning in order for uh, you to call that a rescue plan. The second element of that is that someone else besides you needs to know know how to operate those controls. And now we're getting into the second big part of the MUP update, which is the safe use plan. Now, this part uh, gave me a heart attack when I started reading it because it basically meant we couldn't do our job in entertainment uh, anymore because you had to train, you had to have a safe use plan that involved the specific uh, mup being operated in the specific area it was being operated in in a written safe use plan including the rescue plan and all that fun business had uh, had to be in place anytime a mup was in operation i thought well there goes the ball game you know i guess i should have read this while i was in public comment because now we're aft but there were some uh, allowances that left our job possible, uh, albeit um, requiring some invention on our parts as manage managing people. If you just have one single person lift you use to focus at your theater, easy. You write your safe use plan. Um, you might have to change it or tweak it a bit if there's a show that requires some kind of funny business with it. But otherwise, you just have your safe use plan for your in-house lift and you're good. But if in our case, we're using multiple lifts across multiple sites every day, it can be, uh, what's the word, impossible to write a safe use plan um, from my cozy office for each one of those places because I can't, I can't go out to see them. So uh, the safe use plan, I mean, we could tick through it, but it basically involves uh, doing a job hazard analysis or a work, work hazard, workplace hazard analysis for the place that you're going to be working. Um, how to select the lift to make sure the floor surface is adequate and all that. You need to have a supervisor who is within maintaining you know, visual contact with the MUP operator and someone who needs to know how to operate uh, the ground controls in case of an emergency. Um, the operator also needs to be aware of uh, their responsibilities Uh, Their main new responsibility that differs from all the old ones is occupant knowledge. If they're going to be carrying a lighting designer or someone who's not MUP certified, they need to give them a quick briefing on how the controls work and what not to do. Because if there's an emergency, they're going to be the ones quickest able to assist you. Um, The safe use plan. What I did was basically take my pre-shift, uh, inspection sheet, which everyone has to fill out on a web form. Every time they operate a lift, they're taking a picture of the nameplate. they're going through the pre-shift operations checklist, and then they do the safe use plan, which is identifying all the hazards that are present or going to be present, acknowledging their responsibilities as far as carrying materials and training occupants and their supervisor is present and able to operate the controls and they check out all these things. And then when they submit them, I essentially have a written safe use plan for that lift in that space. And I've offloaded because the responsibility to the operators. And the only reason I was able to even pull this off is because of a little term uh, that, ANSI, that ANSI stuck in there called self-familiarization. The operators are allowed to self-familiarize with um, unique units unique machines if they are trained on that group and type. So when you do your training, you very specifically say I'm training you on group A type 2-3 and group B type 2-3. Those are the two separate trainings that I do. And then you are allowed to operate single person lifts and scissor lifts and or booms and snorkels. And then you're allowed to self-familiarize. And I always point out the manual has to be present in order for you to self-familiarize. So if it's not there, you know, please fail this item so that I can uh, contact whoever is responsible for that lift and have them fix it. I get this, asked this a lot, what if I fail a bunch of stuff on this checklist, can I still operate the lift? Uh, yes, if the lift is still able to be operated uh, in a safe manner and you have mitigated the hazards that you have checked off as present. Now, usually these fails involve missing manual. And I will say like, uh, can you still operate a lift without a manual? Yes, however, um, in one famous incident from a couple of years ago, we had a boom lift that had no manual. We operated safely, slowly and carefully anyway, but it kept having a, a fault. and It was a little yellow triangle and exclamation point. We didn't know what that was because we didn't have the manual. And usually it's a, uh, an oversensitive uh, tilt sensor and it, you just do a hard reset on the e-stop and it'll operate again. And we did that for about an hour until it literally blew up, uh, crapped the bed, all fluids all over the floor, magic smoke coming out all over the place. It was an indoor See, had to be. Once the smoke out
0: of, comes out, you're done.
2: Yeah. Well, um, magic is uh,
0: not a understood by element. anyone. Once
2: right. you put it in, that's it. And when it comes out, it's done. So had we had the manual, we would have been able to tell, oh, this is an extra bad uh, exclamation point, And we would have um, changed our behaviors accordingly. But since we were ignorant of that fact without the manual, we just rode that thing into the ground and caused a much larger problem. Everyone was safe and no one was injured, but it was scary and messy. So I'll tell people uh, you can still operate it safely and carefully, but manage your client's expectations. If something's going wrong with it and they know, hey, there's no manual, so we can't tell what's wrong with this, um, you're offloading liability as you go. (laughs) and Someone else can tell you to blow it up Uh, Or you can say, I can't operate it, there's something wrong with it and we don't know what. And if you'd had the manual, you would have been able to. So I tell them, fail it, operate it slowly and carefully. And this way in the continuum of safety, I'm able to read that report, find out what's wrong with it and work on getting it fixed. But if it's already visibly leaking fluids, if it has uh, visibly exposed wiring, um, if any of the safety, uh, if the the guardrails are not present or dented beyond functionality, or if the anchorage is um, fails its inspection, there are certain, oh, even if a forklift doesn't have a seatbelt, I tell them not to, That sorry, you can't do it. Um, yeah. Not only- because well, because that, that's actually function, a real
0: big one, yeah.
2: Tipping is the main hazard you're gonna cause a problem with, and the seatbelt is the biggest part of the thing that keeps you in the cab where you're safe. Even if it does nothing more than prevent you from trying from leaping out, <laughs> then it's done its job. So uh, I don't know if you had a question or if I answered the question, but the safe use plan um, is the is the big new thing. You need to have a written uh, safe use plan for any time a mup is in operation at
0: your event. Fantastic. Yes, thank you.
2: <laughs> the big thing for me with rigging was that you are not, uh and this has always been the case but now it's called out specifically you cannot carry things outside of the basket so you cannot attach things so no
0: longer putting the the light fixture on the railing outside the basket
2: not outside the basket no
0: i I did say that specifically outside the basket
2: you you could still put it inside and i'd recommend that more than standing it up because then it's going to fall over or fall out um as always uh chains are not legal to be manufactured to be put on the backs of the new models since 2017 but the old ones are still grandfathered in but be aware if you're going up on a lift with a chain gate that there is no tow board so if you're putting materials in there shackles um, or a roll of tie line or tape or whatever they could be easily kicked out the, kicked out the back and it's not that great of a uh, fall fall protection measure either the chain I don't feel so if you are going into a bucket with a chain, be aware that that area of the lift is more hazardous than any other part. And if you're going to have occupants, make sure they know that, of course, climbing on the rails even standing on the tow board is against the rules and always has been because that is your fall protection on scissor lifts. There's nothing in ANSI or OSHA that specifically says you need um, a harness to be uh, clipped in when you're in a scissor lift or a single person
0: lift. You stole my question. Oh, well. <laughs> I was about to go there.
2: Company policies, of course, notwithstanding, you don't have to uh, clip into those. If someone asks you to do it, then you've, if the, that's their company safety policy, then you have to do it. And boom lifts, you have to clip in because there's a launching hazard, whether you're all the way up at height or not. And I will say there's no specific requirement anywhere about what type of attachment is uh, uh, recommended or required but I will strongly uh, recommend a restraint protocol as opposed to a fall arrest um, situation. If you're in a boom lift, if you've ever watched any of the launching videos, it's a couple of things. If you have a most, if you're using fall arrest, you probably have a six foot wide lanyard. If you're driving the lift around and you're only 10, 12 feet up in the air, if you get launched, you're going to hit the ground anyway.
0: Yeah, because the, the thing's not going to engage before you. It's you're, not going to uh, engage
2: before you hit the ground. If you are all the if you're way up at height, and extended out on your boom, and you get launched, you're going to fall way down. That arm is going to bend with you under the force of your uh, uh, deceleration, and then you're going to get paddle balled back up into the bottom of the basket. Who knows how many times? And then you're going to hang there again like an off-season Christmas ornament until someone figures out how to get you down. And I will add that most booms and snorkels have a wildly inefficient manual lowering system. It involves turning some knobs, putting a handle that hopefully is there but is often missing into a hydraulic pump and then manually doing this and you get about half an inch per three or four pumps. If you're 60 feet up in the air, it's going to take a long time to get you down if there's an electrical failure. So for all these reasons and more, I recommend a restraint method for keeping yourself uh, secured in the basket. So if you get launched, oh. you might hurt yourself, but you will be in the basket. You will not, not be hurt and dangling outside of the basket. So a preferable place to be.
0: I, I was already on the restraint in in the lift bandwagon but you've definitely convinced me if i had any doubts at all (laughs) thank you
2: yes i bought a bunch (laughs) of you know rated uh, adjustable straps to hand out to people if they need them such was my zeal in the (laughs) restraint soapbox universe
0: (laughs) well we have covered a lot there is um one other thing i wanted to ask about or call people's attention to and is the reminder that there are other hazards at height other than just being up that are all, yes. when you're up, it's magnified. And in this particular case, I'm mostly referring to electrical risk.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Uh, well, I mean, I was gonna say spiders.
0: Spi- well, but, um, yeah, any scare hazard actually, cause I, you know, you can get a, a shock, a small shock at height And first of all, let me disclaimer: shock is bad, period. But you can get something that is theoretically not dangerous at height, but because you're at height, oh, like
2: like a a jump scare, like like a a jump scare or a sudden loud noise. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, for sure, for sure, and those amplified because you're way up Mm -hmm. in the air. Um, Well, to address your electrical uh, Mm -hmm. um, question first, I'm going to start at the ground with the ground strap. Part of your uh, pre-shift inspection should include um, making sure the ground grounding strap is present and touching the floor. Then know what type of floor you're driving on. Is it insulated or not? Um, Classically, uh, Marley is an insulated flooring surface. It's, you know, rubber, so it doesn't- Marley is
0: a dance floor for those of you who don't live in that world.
2: Thank you. And then um, in the arena world, there's different types of flooring that get put down on top of grass to build the staging and audience participation areas. And some of those products are also insulated. And What I mean by that is when you drive around any type of lift, the machine is generating static electricity. The grounding strap passes that uh, electricity into the ground. Unless the ground, the surface you're driving on is insulated, then it will not go anywhere and it will just build up and up and up until you drive up to a pipe or a piece of truss and reach out to uh, hang something on it and then you'll you'll um, pass the electricity onto that uh, that's s- substance by way of getting zapped. And if you know that in advance, there are ways to mitigate that. You can have an insulated tool that you touch the thing with to pass the electricity through, or uh, in absence of that, I'll just use my elbow because it hurts less, but being aware of it is important. And if you're driving a very long way, Across an, uh, an arena field, a stadium, you could build up a pretty significant charge, and then you reach out with the lighting fixture, you get zapped, and you drop it, and then you cause all kinds of problems. So that's uh, the uh, ground zapping part. And the other, even worse one, is of course overhead electrical power lines. Um, we do setups, uh, you know, in Hollywood and parking lots, backstage places, uh, back lots where there's overhead power lines. And anytime you see a line running overhead, you just assume that it's a power line. You don't know what it is. So you just assume it's a power line. And up to 50 kilovolts, you are supposed to uh, stay at least 10 feet away. There's a chart tells you as the voltage goes up, um, you need to be farther and farther away. And of course, the reason for that is you don't need to touch the power line. it will arc at you if you are close enough. If it senses a lazier way to the ground than the cable it's in, it will jump out at that way and pass through you to the ground and it will uh, fry you and probably anyone within 10 or 20 feet of the base of your lift. Um, these happen uh, more frequently than they should um, and be aware of any potential electrical power lines or un uh, uninsulated power situations that are overhead. I mean, you don't need to get zapped on a power line. You can also crush yourself into the ceiling quite easily. So look in the direction of travel and keep your, your arms, hats, ears, glasses, and feet inside the ride. Inside the ride, the ride
0: all at time. all
2: times. <laughs> um, if you go to OSHA's website, you can search for um, fatalities by a keyword. And if you insert aerial lift, you will find that every month someone is getting electrocuted, someone is crushing themselves against a beam, someone is tipped over and fallen out. Um, it these accidents are happening and they for the most part do not have to with proper training and addressing the hazards that are on site. That's part of what the safe use plan is getting at. You're looking you're looking ahead to all these potential hazards so that you can avoid or mitigate them as needed.
0: So um, as is probably obvious from, from the expertise presented today, Phil does a bunch of trainings, um, and, uh, some that, that I'm aware of are coming up, uh, Phil, you're part of the, um, fall protection plan meets theatrical reality in USITT. And also you're going to be a presenter at the event safety summit this year as well. And do you have other things coming up?
2: Heck yeah. I, um, I make dinner on Sundays. Um, I'm coming over. Karate. Uh, I'm uh, going to be the what? Cub Scout Master next year. What, what about what about involved there? But what uh, about in the industry? Industry wide, I've got um, uh, a lot of training that I do online. Of course, during the the, the Great Turndown, <laughs> I <I've> beefed <laughs> up our online training presence so you can come get some ETCP renewal credits uh, at biggerhammer.com/training. All all of the, the available classes are on there, and you can check them. Out. I try to do at least uh, one every Wednesday. Awesome.
0: Yeah. So we'll put that in the show notes, guys. Um, and we do want to give a thank you to both Phil and Bigger Hammer Production Services uh, for sponsoring this podcast. Uh, so if you guys want to reach out to us, as I said earlier, our email is podcast at eventsafetyalliance.org. And uh, check us out on social media, go to our website, sign up for the event safety summit and watch that for breaking news. And Steve, you're still here, I promise guys he was here (laughs) the entire time. Anything to add?
1: I I have been, you know, frankly, this is one of those wonderful podcasts where I don't have to say very much, you know, I was prepared to interject some, you know, very insightful comments like it's bad to fall down or (laughs) to have things land on your head. But I think that Phil has done a good job of covering that during the great turndown and otherwise. (laughs) So yeah, um, you know, I'm primarily focused on front of house, but I guess what I will observe is nothing happens front of house unless you take conversations like this one seriously, because that really is where the magic takes place.
2: You know what, since Steve mentioned it, here's a little wrap up note front of house, uh, changing light bulbs in a tall in a high ceiling lobby can present a variety of um, hazardous uh, scenarios. And I really can't say enough about the really, really long light bulb changing pole. So if you are in a scenario where you're the bulb shopper, you know, get the kind that. can grab Uh, that you can get a pole for don't get the one that's just you know you're on your own get one that matches with the kind of pole you can get you can reach 40 feet up with those things just incredible you know i was doing a fall training at the new uh, motion picture academy museum or whatever that thing is called and they were saying well here we've got this walkway so if we put a ladder uh you know we're going to be too close to the edge. So we're technically just on a, a ladder, but if we fell, we would be falling much farther. And w- what are we going to do about this? And I was like, put a sponge on a pole, guys. You, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the answer should, you know, KISS, of course. It doesn't always have to yep. be intimidating or complicated just because it's fall
1: protection. Yeah, And just to underscore that fun point, I have one in my own garage. So even real Luddites can master this <laughs> old technology. This old technology. Yay.
2: <laughs> the stick has come a long way, baby.
0: Well, on that <laughs> note. Uh... <laughs> On that note, we're going to wrap this up. So thank you so much. Thanks, to Phil. everyone.
2: On behalf of myself, thank you so much for having me. I appreciated it.
0: <laughs> oh, y'all stay safe out there. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Think that should not be our Easter. Eh? Yes.